You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. You can be seated. And as you're uh, being seated, if you would, take your Bibles out. And let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 21 and go through verse 23 today and to our worship band. Thank you again for leading us so well in worship. Hey, wouldn't it be great if you had a lake house? That's something I've always wanted is a lake house. Today we're going to read in Colossians and Paul's going to show us just three steps. If you all these three things, you too can have. No, we're not. It's not that kind of sermon. It's not that kind of sermon. But it would be great to have a lake house, wouldn't it? Imagine if you had not just a lake, any lake house, but a million-dollar lake house with a million-dollar view. Well, I want you to watch this morning. Story of a million-dollar lake house right here in our area, right here in Lake Palestine. And as we watch this, just a short clip of a, of a new story. Bonus, watch for someone that many of you know. When you spend 16 years on the water, you get used to some things. Jim Beckerley is used to good fishing, but better sights. You just don't see that any other place on the lake. But what has happened over the last couple of weeks is hard to ignore. Geologically, there's something different right there. A million dollar home is starting to buckle. As the bank slowly erodes, the house is separating with it. The pier is getting crunched. That's their aspirations there for their dream house or their retirement house. Now it's literally coming down around their ears. It's what has Paul Keel in his jet ski taking some pictures. I'm, I'm glad it's not my house. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't live far. This is a very exclusive neighborhood around Lake Palestine. They're a whole lot steeper here than where we are. Our, where we're at, it's uh, gently sloping down. The rains and strong winds haven't been kind to this decade-old home, neither to the seawall. Landslides have happened before, as you can tell. The ground is saturated. Some of the large, older trees uh, have been falling over. The homeowners have moved out, according to the Homeowners Association. The no trespassing sign is cruel irony. Engineers and the fire department are playing defensive. Because everyone, including Jim, is waiting to see when it will go. Don't you love Paul, Mr. Empathy, over there? I'm just glad it's not my house, you know? That house, it looks amazing. At one time it did, it looked absolutely amazing. But when the ground beneath it shifted, the foundation couldn't support it. And so the house tumbled. And you know, the Bible says a life can be like that. Above the surface, it can look great, has everything you want, good family, success, morality, a comfortable life. It can be a million dollar life. But a life built on anything but Jesus Christ will crumble. And three verses this morning, just three verses, Paul is going to give you a snapshot of your whole life, the snapshot of an entire life of a Christian, your past, your present, and your future, and all of it. You got to go three for three. All three must be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And this is an important reminder, you know, because there's something that's it's absolutely crazy, but totally normal. We all do this as Christians. We we view our past as being built on Jesus Christ. Absolutely. He saved me in the past. Jesus did it. I, I was saved. But our present and even our future, we try to build on other things, don't we? 
But Paul wants us to know this morning, just like houses and roads, your life will crumble on the wrong foundation. So let's look together at Colossians 1. Uh, it's a little different for us. We're, instead of looking at a huge chunk, we're just looking at three verses, verse 21 through 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul starts in verse 1 with your past. And essentially what he wants us to know this morning is, whatever you think of sin, however bad you think sin is, it's worse. It's worse. He says you were alienated. And he puts this one first because it's what comes first. It's the root, root cause. This word alienated, it, you know, it's a powerful relational word. It is a condition of complete estrangement. And so it implies this isolation, this, this otherness. Probably the simplest way I could put it is you don't belong. It's like me every time I go into Hobby Lobby, okay? These are not, I'm not one of these people. I do not belong here. You may not know it, but this is your core issue. This is what's wrong with your life. Think back to Genesis 3 with me. You know, God, God creates man and he creates this garden. He creates the Garden of Eden, this place where we are in perfect relationship with God and we belong there. We belong there with him. But what happened when sin entered the world is alienation from God. We didn't belong in the garden anymore with him. We couldn't exist in that perfect relationship anymore. And so everything else, all the other bad things, flowed out of that severed relationship. So I know, I know, you could make, every one of us can make a long list of all of our problems. And you think your problem is your boss or your mother-in-law or some politician or something like that. It is not. Your problem is your alienation from God. Then he says, because of that alienation, you are hostile in mind. You're not just a stranger to God. You are his enemy. You are a hostile. You know, I think this one surprises us. So I, th I think, if we're honest, all of us feel that separation from God. We feel, we know things aren't right and as they should be. But, but, but we tend to think of ourselves as kind of well-meaning strangers. You know, we, we just haven't met God yet or we just haven't found the truth yet. We, we need to be introduced. But as soon as we are and as soon as we find that truth, of course we're going to follow it. It's not what the scriptures say, though. Romans 1 puts it this way. Romans 1 says we have all adopted the mindset of that serpent in the garden. We are not neutral. We are hostile. We have competing agendas. We are in rebellion. And because of that, whatever truth we encounter... We'll twist it and we'll turn it and we'll backflip and do all kind of gymnastics to use it to suit our own purposes because we're in rebellion. So what the Bible says is we don't have an information problem. The problem with our minds is that it's connected to our hearts and our hearts are hostile. And so you've probably heard the saying, the mind justifies whatever the heart wants. Now, I know that sounds harsh that you... Man, you are alienated from God, and you are his enemy. I, I know it sounds harsh, but just 
Watch your hearts. Watch your own heart when God, God starts to tell you what he wants you to do with your stuff, and especially your idols, your money, your body, your family, your kids, your Sundays. Watch as your mind justifies what your heart wants, even as it contradicts God's truth. And that's what leads to the, the next step, the third step. You are doing evil deeds. And it comes last because it's last in this process. So your sins, understand, they're not just innocent mistakes. They are the fruit, the result of alienation and hostility. And if that's true, whatever comes out of that heart that's alien and hostile is sin. Even the good stuff. Even our good deeds. It can even be true of your religious activity. Even our good deeds can come out of a heart that is still alienated and still hostile. Think no farther than the Pharisees. We just studied the book of Mark. No one had more religious activity, more so-called good deeds than the Pharisees. And y'all, I've read the gospel several times through. Correct me if I'm wrong. Jesus doesn't seem to be a big fan of theirs, does he? Because they're trying to lay a foundation on their own works based out of a hostile heart, you see. The good news is, the good news is, for every believer here, everyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ, all that we've just talked about is your past. It's not your present, and it is not your future. It's not who you are anymore. So next, he describes your present, who you are in Christ today. And here's what we find. It's a description of God mixing just the perfect ingredients and pouring and laying down a smooth, firm foundation that is the only certain foundation for life. Because he fixes our core problem. If our core problem is that we are alienated, he says now in Christ we are reconciled. We're reconciled. That, that's the core thing that Jesus did. Jesus didn't become your life coach or give us better coping strategies or, or life hacks. He moved us from alien and enemy into reconciled. He made peace between you and God. All that was done in the garden, he undid. The aliens, the enemies are now in perfect relationship with God. Well, how? How could he do such a thing? And I think the answer that Paul gives us, it's actually pretty surprising. The death of his body. That's how he did it. The death of his body. His real physical death of his real physical body was the means that moved you from alien to reconciled. Now, we've got to remember the context that Paul is speaking into. There's... Uh, these heretics, kind of early Gnostics that were going around saying, physical, ew, the physical is bad, the physical is yucky. God would never put on the physical. He would never stoop so low. And so this Jesus, he just appeared to be in body. It, it, but it was kind of like a mirage. And death, ew, God can't die. That, that's so far beneath God. He, he would never pollute himself with death. And so their version of Jesus was that Jesus came and just, just dipped his toe a little bit into our water. Just enough to get our attention. And then we take his teaching, we take his example, and we apply it to our lives, and we become good people. 
You know, that, that sounds great. I think if we're honest, it even makes some common sense. But it is a recipe for Paul Keel being on the news talking about your house crumbling. It won't support your house. Look at what Paul stresses. He's, he says Jesus' body, that word is soma. It means the embodiment. It is the literal, physical existence of something. It cannot be just a mirage. His flesh, his sarks, that's the material substance. That's the literal, the skin and the bones. Paul is saying his embodiment, his material substance, his real, actual death reconciled you. His teaching didn't reconcile you. His example didn't reconcile you. His death. It took his death to reconcile you. Why? Why did it take that? Well, Paul, here's what Paul's saying. This is so important. It took his body, his flesh, his death, because your body, your flesh, even your death would never do it. Couldn't accomplish it. Couldn't reconcile you to God. He had to become just like you all the way down to the physical to represent you, to do what you could never do for yourself. God couldn't dip his toe in our water. He had to cannonball down into his creation. So what Paul is trying to get us to understand is right now who we are in Christ, that reconciliation is done for you, not by you. And so you can almost picture God as a civil, civil engineer He's mixing the foundation, the concrete. He's pouring it. He's leveling this perfect foundation for your life that will never crumble. And the mix, the ingredients in this concrete, it's only got three. His body, his flesh, his death. Anything else in that mix is a contaminant. Try harder, good works. Anything from you will only weaken that foundation. It will not strengthen it. It's done, it's finished, it's poured, it's, it's hardened, it is there. It is for you, but it cannot be done by you. But God's not done with you yet. Did you know that? He's not done with us yet. Because next, Paul describes our future. He says that this Jesus, because of his death, because of our reconciliation, he will one day present us to the Father. This word present, it's kind of a technical term. It's used, it was used in the courtroom setting and it was used in the sacrificial setting. It's a, it's a formal act of bringing uh, uh, something before an authority in hopes that that authority will accept it. That's this presenting. And so it was used in the Old Testament to describe the unblemished animal that, that you would bring before the, the priest for your sacrifice and you hope that priest would say, hey, would declare this sacrifice is acceptable. It would be used in court where a person would be presented before a judge, hoping that that judge would find that person innocent. And he gives us three descriptions, three ways that we will be presented before the Father one day. Now, I know it's kind of cliche for preachers to have like three points, and they all start with the same letter, and it's alliteration. Do you know what? It's biblical. Because in the Greek, these three things all have alliteration. They all start with the same letter. How about that? So number one, holy. It means that which has been set apart, consecrated to God. It's the total opposite of alienated. It is that which belongs exclusively to God. Blameless, without blemish. This was used most commonly to describe the physical perfection required of a sacrificial animal. 
And you know what? Twice in the New Testament, it's used to describe Jesus. Hebrews 9 and 1 Peter 1, where Jesus is the one who is presented blameless without blemish. And thirdly, above reproach. This is drawn directly from a legal procedure. It's one totally free of accusation. And so the picture is that Satan, the the accuser of the brethren, he, he hurls charges at us. But God declares you innocent of all charges. Do you see the exchange there? He became like you, taking on body, flesh, and death. So you get to become like him, holy, blameless, above reproach. This is your future. Jesus will present you to the Father like himself in every way except divinity. That's what Paul's saying. Isn't that amazing? One more thing we have to understand, though. It's future only in terms of our experience, not in terms of heavenly reality. So this, did you know this is how God sees you right now? Holy, blameless, and above reproach. And so Paul is saying the foundation of our lives now is what will be fully in the future. The foundation of our lives is how God sees us, not how I see myself and not how others see. And then in verse 23, what comes next is how we live, how we build upon such a foundation. He, he kind of switches back to the now. So that's, that's our future But God sees us that way now, and so here's how we build on top of that foundation. Very important for us to understand. Beginning in verse 23, a shift happens. So we're no longer talking about salvation. We're talking about sanctification. How we learn to walk in what is already true of us. How we build upon the foundation that we started on. Because remember, the salvation is certain. And we know it is certain because he did it, not us. But... You can really mess up your life trying to build it on what you do instead of what he did. It starts off with this word none of us likes, if. If. That sounds uncertain in the way it comes across in the English. I mean, it's easy to read starting in verse 23 and say, I knew it. I've got to follow all the rules or I'll lose my salvation. You have to understand, what, that is not what comes through in the Greek in the, in the original language. In the original Greek... Paul is not even entertaining the thought that you could lose your salvation. There is no doubt expressed whatsoever. In fact, in the way it's constructed, confidence is expressed. So you could almost translate it, at any rate, if you stand firm in the faith, and I'm sure you will, is what he's saying. And also remember the context. So the Gnostics were saying, yeah, yeah, Jesus was great for a start, but you need more. So they say, you need need to advance. You you need to become more sophisticated. You need to uncover some deeper spiritual secrets. But in verse 23, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. We never graduate beyond Jesus. Never. And he is pointing out, in fact, how foolish, crazy it would be to move my million-dollar house off of a firm foundation and start building it on a weaker foundation. That would be foolish. No one would do that. Yet, every day, aren't we? We are tempted to add our good works or some appealing new teaching or the ways of the culture to a foundation that Jesus has already laid for us. Next thing you know, here comes Paul Keel on his jet ski because our house is crumbling. Instead, he says to continue. And notice, continue in what? In the faith. 
Not in the works, not in the earning, in the trusting in Jesus. That's what we continue on for our whole lives. How do we continue? It tells us four things about how we continue. And all of them, all of them have to do with remaining. He says we are stable. That word means established. It, it uses the image of a foundation. That's why we're doing all this civil engineering talk and looking at videos of houses falling. That's where it comes from. It means to remain on the firm, established foundation. Paul's saying, don't move your house. It's already on the best foundation. Don't move it to another one. Steadfast. It comes from a word meaning the place where one sits. And so the word picture is like a, a person riding a horse. And that horse can turn and jump and, and start and stop, but no matter what that horse does, he, he stays firm in the saddle. So the picture is remaining firmly seated on the gospel. Thirdly, not shifting. And this phrase here is the only place it's used in the New, New Testament, and it's for a reason. So this phrase can mean earthquake-stricken. And you may remember this region was prone to earthquakes. And in fact, by the time Paul is writing the city Colossae, it had been destroyed by earthquakes and rebuilt many times. And in fact, shortly after this writing, it's going to be destroyed by another earthquake again and never rebuilt. They won't even build it back. They got so sick and tired of building their whole lives on foundations that couldn't stand up to the shaking and the turmoil of the world around them, they just gave up. You know, I can't help but think, some of you know how exactly how that feels. You, you've built your life on some relationship, but it didn't hold up, or some standard of, of living and the market turned, or some politician and they didn't deliver, and you are so tired of rebuilding again and again. Come to the solid foundation. Come to the foundation of Jesus Christ, then nothing will move you. As the psalmist says, though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the sea, I can trust in him. But there's a fourth way that we remain in the faith. It's easy to miss, though. And it's easy to miss because he, he personalizes it more than all the others. He says, I became a minister. Paul says, you know what? I was rescued, and then I became a part of the rescue team. I read an article just last week. It was written by a guy named John Mualem, I believe is how you say it. The title of the article was this. It was just a kayaking trip until it upended our lives. That's ominous, and it's ominous because it's a crazy story. See, John and his two friends, they'd ventured deep into uh, the Alaskan wilderness for several days to go on a kayaking and a camping trip. Early on, they, they hit a pretty violent storm, and so they couldn't stay in their kayaks. They found refuge in a bay, and they camped there for a couple days as the storm raged. Of the three, only one of them really knew what he was doing. There was one kind of wilderness expert. John and his other friend, no clue what they were doing. As they were hiking through the land, on that day, the storm was so strong, it sent a huge tree toppling over, and it fell right on the friend who was the wilderness expert. It didn't kill him, but it broke several bones. He suffered internal bleeding. One lung was punctured. He couldn't walk or stand on his own. So somehow John and his other friend, they somehow freed him of the tree. They, they car carried him several miles 
back to the campsite. One of them found a radio they had and tried to call for help. The problem was this was like a weak directional radio. It, it, it had almost no chance of reaching anyone. But it just so happened, right at that moment, a Coast Guard cutter named the Mustang was passing by right off the bay, just a few miles away. It was normally stationed 100 miles or, or more away, but it had been on its route to somewhere else. It got diverted by the storm. And the Mustang heard that mayday call, and it headed in to rescue the men. As the friends waited, they, they tried to keep their friend awake and alive. They had to wait for several hours. But finally, after several hours, he described this moment. We saw three men appear out of the woods, wearing their hats and their uniforms, he describes them as reassuringly large. They began to treat his friend. They carried him on a stretcher. They drove him through the big waves and the Zodiac back to the ship. And then a world-class helicopter pilot. He finally found a way to break through the storm and made it to the ship. But then they had to get the injured man from the helicopter, uh, from the ship into the helicopter in the rough seas. In fact, they even have a, a video of the moment of them hoisting their friend up. And to do this, the helicopter had to hover 40 feet above the boat and exactly mirror the ship's speed and trajectory in the rough seas. John will later say, despite how difficult and almost impossible this is, these Coast Guard guys were so good, he said, the whole procedure from our vantage point seemed seamless and routine. It's an unbelievable story, but that's not the part that really stuck out to me. The part that stuck out to me is what he described in the aftermath. When he went to visit his friend in the hospital who survived, as he was recovering, John's friend looked at him and said, looked at John and said, thank you for saving my life. And you would think like, well, yeah, of course he's going to thank him for saving my life. He probably expected him to say that. He was caught off guard. John writes, until that moment, the idea that we saved his life had never occurred to us. We had zero sense of accomplishment. In our minds, all we did was avoid screwing up until the real help could arrive and save him. See, until that moment, John didn't see himself as part of the rescue team. John thought the rescue team was the professionals with the boats and the helicopters and the knowledge and the bravery. But to the man who was saved, John was absolutely part of the rescue team. And so are you. So are you. Listen, men and women, the mission of the church is not for a few professionals to rescue people and then make them as comfortable as possible until they go to heaven. It is to rescue people and then make them part of the rescue team too. That's what the church does. Everyone who remains on the foundation of the saving work of Jesus is a minister of the gospel. So, this morning, in this, this snapshot of a Christian life, past, present, and future. Where are you this morning? Would you say, I feel alienated, separated from God? Are you reconciled? Are you on a mission? Are you a part of the rescue team? For those of you this morning who'd say, you know, if I'm honest, me and God are hundreds of miles apart. Here's what I'd say. You can't know how good the good news is until you come to terms with how bad the bad news is. The gospel is not good advice 
for Jesus to teach you and for you to follow. It is the good news that you were God's enemy, but Jesus became like you in every way. He died the death you deserved. Then he picks you up and he carries you and he presents you to the Father blameless. So ask God this morning. Ask God if it is true that Jesus is God who is a man who died for you. And if that's true, yours is only to believe. That's all you do. But maybe you're here this morning and you say, yeah, I'm, I'm reconciled. I've, I've been saved, but life sure feels unstable. Do you feel that? Do you, you feel the shifting and the shaking and the chaos in life? If that's you, here's what I'd say. Don't look at the facade. Look at the foundation. You will never fix it by adjusting the circumstances to make them just right. You got to look beneath. And it's possible, it's just possible, at some point along the way, you shifted your hope. It's so easy to do. Understand this this morning. Your hope isn't that Jesus will teach you how to have a nice life. Your hope is in the foundation he built for you by his death. In fact, you know, that story on that house in Lake Palestine, there, there's a builder who's a member of our church. He goes to another campus, and some years ago, he was asked to build a couple houses right in that same area, but he turned down the job. You know why? Because they weren't willing to build the right foundation. And he said, listen, if I can't do it with the right foundation, I'm not going to do it. We would all do well to have that same attitude, wouldn't we? If I can't build it on the foundation that Jesus laid for me by his body, his flesh, and his death, then it doesn't belong in my life. I'm not going to build it. I thought this week about how easily I do this. You know, you know what's so easy for me to do? To acknowledge Jesus saved me, to, but then to go build my present, even my future, my life on things like my kids. You know, because I love them, and then I, I build my whole life on, like, their success and their achievement. And if they're well-rounded and thriving, then I'm doing great. And my hope is in the facade of my kids' lives. It's so easy to slip into. Or on my religious activity. Hello, I'm a pastor. I do all the good things, and I do them well, and I, and I trust that that is going to support my life and give me the results I want for my life. You know what I think we see all over the place today? That there are countless people today who feel like their lives are crumbling because they built it on their version of what a well-ordered society looks like. Or they built it on fitting right in with a culture that agrees with them. And you all know our culture is rapidly shifting. And if that was your foundation, then your life is rapidly shifting too. You, you feel your life violently shaking right now in that earthquake. Remember, if you can feel that, remember, if I can't build it on the foundation Jesus laid, it doesn't belong and it will not last. The shaking and the shifting you are feeling cannot be fixed by changing outward circumstances. Return to the firm foundation. Put all of your hope for today and for tomorrow in him. Or maybe you're here today and you know you're reconciled, you're on that foundation, but you are not on mission. I think it's worth, worth asking, why? Why has your foundation not had the same effect on you that it had on Paul? Almost always, it's this. Almost always, it's because I don't really think that what Jesus did for me was enough. 
Because if I, if I think I already have all I need, I'll turn outward. You know, out, out of that sense of abundance, I seek to be generous with the overflow. That's natural. But if I sense scarcity, then I turn inward. I, I seek to get instead of to give. If that's you this morning, remember your certain future. Holy, blameless, above reproach, like Jesus in every way except divinity. It's already all yours. You already have it. Remain on that foundation and then suit up and put on the rescue uniform. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.